So, if, if you want to uh, read along with us, we're going to read Acts, uh, starting in Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and to the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done throughout the apostles. And all who believed were together, and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings, and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of God. One, two. Hello. Hello. (laughs) Welcome to uh, Watermark, where... uh, Marriages happen and babies happen. That's, that's not the reason why you should come here, though. Please don't. So, so uh, as Tommy said, um, my name is Sam, and uh, I serve uh, here as uh, an elder. I, that sounds so weird to say because I'm so not an elder in terms of the actual age and whatnot. Um, but uh, at Tommy's request, whenever, once in a while, I, I do preach for him, um, and uh, I really felt in my heart to sort of share uh, evangelism this morning. Surprise. All right. So we're about halfway through uh, Genesis, and we're seeing that God is going into great lengths to fulfill his promise uh, to Abraham. And there's a great emphasis uh, to make Abraham into a great nation and bless the families through the earth. Um, And the reason why I wanted to share about evangelism this morning, uh, it's really not a big focus in many churches today. And uh, part of the reason is maybe a lot of people still have a lot of bad taste in their mouth uh, from a previous church or from previous experience uh, from the last time they drank that evangelism juice. Uh, But we're not going to focus on a modern way of doing evangelism. I, th- I think there has been some really bad habits that form within the last couple of hundred years uh, where sometimes I think we reduce Jesus and we institutionalize him and manufacture him and duplicate Jesus and reduce him into a sales pitch. So... Um, We're not going to focus on that. This morning, I'm just going to try to connect the dots of missional living and how communities that are deeply in love with Jesus, justice and discipleship is actually the best way of doing evangelism, as well as listening and being sensitive to the Holy Spirit. So with that, let me pray and we'll start. So Father God, Abba Father, we love you. We thank you, Lord, for what you're doing, oh God, in our communities, in our house churches, in our church, in our congregation, in we watermark, in individual lives. So we thank you, Lord, for what you're doing. I pray, oh Father, for you, Holy Spirit, Lord, to come and really speak into our lives and show us Show us on how we can engage missionally and how we can engage in evangelism, O Father, in fresh and new ways 
for us to maybe rethink and reimagine and sort of animate the gospel in our daily lives. In the name of Jesus, amen. So the big picture is that God's plan of redemption and for all of creation and all the families of the earth, and we've been studying this, um, and, and Tommy has been going in, I think, I think where is it, like chapter 27, so we're a little bit over halfway. Um, still got a long ways to go. Uh, but the sense of redemption and, and God's master plan or the great narrative of using Abraham, the promise of blessing we call it, and using him and to bless all the families of the earth through him. And starting with Abraham, obviously, and, you know, and uh, Abraham had Isaac, Isaac had Jacob, Jacob had the 12 tribes, um, and the, Jacob's 12 sons become the 12 tribes. In Deuteronomy, we see that God says the following to the Israelites after Moses led them out of the Egypt. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people uh, for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out of a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So we continually hear this chosen nation. Chosen nation, but chosen for what? Through countless prophets in the Old Testament, it's clear that God doesn't choose the ancient Israelites to the exclusion of everyone else, but chooses them for the benefit of everyone else. We see that in Isaiah. Behold my servant whom I behold my chosen. In whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. In Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6, I will make you as a life for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6. So many consider these uh, messianic uh, prophecies or texts, but however, continually you see Israel forgetting again and again and again what it means for them to be a chosen nation. See, it's not that it's not that the Jewish people were chosen for the benefit of themselves. It was for the benefit of everyone else. That was the whole plan. Now, interestingly, the way um, ancient Israel saw themselves as chosen people, being a blessed, and, and somewhat similar to, I think, us today. We see ourselves perhaps in a privileged or chosen status, and we neglect this calling to be a blessing to our neighbors. Now, there's been many preachers urging Christians to wake up from this. Uh, there's a, a preacher, William Barclay, um, Scottish minister, he says, there's been many preachers urging Christians to wake up from this. Sorry, that's not what he said. That's what I wrote down. Don't make any mistakes, Sam. Okay. So William Barclay said this, a Scottish minister, we are not saved for deeds. These are the, oh, sorry, we're not saved by deeds. We're saved for these. These are the twin truth of the Christian life. 
And there has been many others who were sort of along with him to get people to understand that it's, it's both. That you're in the kingdom of God to bring others into the kingdom of God. After the Old Testament, the Messiah prophesied comes and the gospel in Matthew starts with, the, in Matthew chapter 1 verse 1, the book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That's specifically written out to sort of help us to understand what has come down to sort of this continuity of the promise of the blessing to Abraham being fulfilled in Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 3, verse 25 to 26, you are the sons of the prophets under the covenant that God made with your father, saying Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God have God having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning everyone from your wickedness. So Paul also writes this in his epistles as well, that Jesus pretty much embodies this promise of the blessing. And before Jesus' ascension, he promises something for us to look forward to. And for teachers or, or preachers or, or parents for that matter, you know many times it's the very last thing that sort of matters. And we see recorded here in Acts chapter 1 verse 6 eight. Right before Jesus ascend, ascended, right? Shoot up in the sky. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? They still didn't get it. He said to them, it's not for you to know the times and seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive the power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you'll be my witness in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So there's a very clear connection of this grand narrative of God's plan. The spiritual vocation is right here in front of us, I believe. So let's drill down a little bit and look at what our responsibilities here on this earth are. So let's, let's look at that. Um, let me start from here. Much of evangelism we see today is a result of very much of an early Protestant mission. After the Reformation, Protestants really did not go into a full-scale missions until 19th century. Uh, the only exception was the Moravian Church, and they started, I believe, around 1730, something like that, 1732, uh, which they were the exceptions uh, to this. And, and the first two Moravian missionaries actually sold themselves, or tried to, they were Germans. They were trying to sell themselves to slavery uh, in the Caribbean or West Indies. They actually said, hey, uh, no, you can't do that. You can't sell yourself. You know, we don't accept Germans as slaves in this thing. Uh, but I was there. I was there in St. Thomas. And this is the actual uh, grave. When I looked at them, uh, I, I don't know if you can see it, but actually it's a 1754 where he was buried. This is a little better. In 1796, these are the graves of the first Protestant or Moravian uh, missionaries that were set in the Western Hemisphere. And I think when I look at these, I, I am impressed by this dedication and how precious the gospel was to these guys. It's not something that we just look around, you know, um, 
and throw around this idea of Jesus and the gospel and what it means to follow Christ and how simple it is for us. There's so, much, so many complexities that is involved. And, and we see that these people were willing to do whatever it was necessary. And it's recorded that 13,000 slaves uh, believed because of their efforts. But for nearly 300 years, Protestant mission wasn't really active. 275, for about 275 years, Protestant mission wasn't really in a full-scale mode. And, and I think much of what we see today is very much influenced by sort of this modern age, colonialism, enlightenment, and reaction to it. Oh, Sorry. Interesting, what Jesus constantly did was see a need, he met it, he saw what the Father was doing, and he did it. And he healed people, delivered people, befriended tax collectors, all kind of weird people. But ultimately, he gave his life for them, right? He never seemed to rush to get people signed on a dotted line. You know, it's funny sort of noticing that, you know, Jesus goes and heals a blind person. Okay, so now you can see. Okay, I want you to say this prayer after me. Say, I accept me as uh, your personal Lord and Savior. And it's, it's really not like that, right? It's, it's very interesting how Jesus demonstrated God's love in such a, a radical way. And early in Acts, uh, much of the public preaching that was done was not done out of just, hey, you know, let's, uh, let's get a bunch of people saved today. Let's go out. The early apostles very much moved after miracles and, and signs and wonders. And then they came onto the scene and they explained, hey, this is what God is doing. Scott McKnight says this, uh, he's a New Testament uh, scholar. Some problems that still linger from medieval and reformation's emphasis on getting saved and going to heaven while the enlightenment claimed God had nothing to do with this world. I think today, I think we're getting a little better at this, but we're a lot, a lot of, uh, I think, Western churches as well as others are struggling with this understanding of what it means for and way too much emphasis in terms of saving souls. What does that really mean in terms of saving souls? How do you quantify that? How do you measure that? It's tough, I think, because we have to strike a good balance between evangelism and doing justice or kingdom works. And I think we're seeing more of that. But the consequence of a gospel and evangelism without the kingdom works produce disastrous consequences in our society. Too much emphasis, I think, on just saving souls. And what we see is this. Three examples. Jamaica. Five, supposedly, to collect all the data, 500% saved. That means every person in Jamaica said, hey, I accept Jesus or check the box or whatever, five times. But we know, 10 years ago, Jamaica also had the highest murder rate. So there is this disconnect there. Rwanda. Tutsis and Hutus. Most of you know the Rwanda genocide. If you don't know, check it out. Over 94% people claim Christianity. 94%. 
Believe it or not, a lot of people went to church right before the genocide started happening. Tommy mentioned about the prosperity gospel uh, not too long ago. When I was in South Africa, there is huge, gigantic churches right next to slums with unemployment high as 75%. But it's okay. Keep on tithing because your soul is saved. So there's a serious disconnect between bringing people to the kingdom of God and doing the kingdom works. And the statement, Jesus died for my sins, it has to marry the kingdom works that he did. You cannot just cut out three years of his life and just look at Jesus dying on the cross. You can't do that. You have to see what Jesus was doing within those three years of him declaring the kingdom is at hand. Even taking care of the poor, especially, I think. We see this in Galatians chapter 2, verse uh, 9 through 10, when Paul is talking about how his ministry was approved uh, by the apostles when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be the pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me. They gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, and we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. It's not like, hey, Peter's saying to Paul, hey, I want you to build 10 churches within the next 10 years. Let's start that campaign. That was the only thing he said, hey, Paul, just remember the poor. Even in the Old Testament, we see the year of Jubilee. Or the Isaiah talking about true fasting in chapter 58. Is it not that this fast that I choose to loose the bonds of the wickedness, to undo the stress of the yoke, and let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? It's not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? And at the same time, I think we can also have to look at the other way around. Many charities I think we see today had Christian origins 100 years ago, 150 years ago, which seemed to be long forgotten uh, because they only did social good. One of the missionaries that we prayerfully and financially support is Joy and Cragen. They're doing some long-term missions or looking to do it in uh, Southeast Asia, and they're specifically focusing on sex trafficking and human trafficking. And prevention. What if that's all they did? And not think and talk about that little girl and her soul. What if all we did was provide food and shelter and and do social goods, but totally take Jesus out? There's a huge, huge consequences for that as well. Interestingly enough, this is very funny, but, uh, well, not ha-ha funny, but, uh, a devout atheist originally from South Africa, a British columnist now, he wrote a column in the title, title, as an atheist, I truly believe Africa needs God. And for a bit, it was actually on Richard Dawkins' website. Funny enough, they take it down now, but, but internet, everything lives forever, right? 
He says this, Matthew Perez says this, Now a confirmed atheist, I become convinced of the enormous contribution that Christian evangelism makes in Africa, sharply distinct from the work of secular NGOs, government projects, and international aid efforts. These alone will not do. Education and training alone will not do. In Africa... Christianity changes people's hearts. It brings a spiritual transformation. The rebirth is real. The change is good. Isn't that interesting from a devout atheist? Why'd you take it down, Richard? (laughs) For us Christians to effectively share the gospel, we have to do both and we have to strike a balance in the understanding of what it means. We have to share the love of Jesus and show this is not just in the mind of soul, but also in the physical needs as well. Now, both of these mentioned are important, but the element that I believe ties is relationship and community. Scott McKnight, I quoted him earlier, the New Testament scholar, he said this, the work of God, when he was talking about evangelism and the gospel, he said this, the, uh, the work of God to restore humans to union with God and communion with others in the context of the community for the good of others and the world. You know, it's interesting. Um, Pastor Tommy uh, took on this pastoral position seven, eight years ago, I believe, something like that. And I I think uh, he was saying that it started out with 30 to 35 people. And now we're pushing 300, 350, including children. But who were not impacted by this ministry? I certainly was. I moved back from uh, the the Caribbean uh, doing long-term missions, and I really, really needed a home church that I can connect to. And I fell in love with the the soul and the vibe and the, the music of this church. Hallelujah. How many people learned about Jesus and was baptized through this ministry? Who are not impacted by house churches here? And for those who are not in house churches, join one, please. But the whole point is this. We learn about God together in a community. We challenge each other, love each other, hold each other up. There is no such thing as just me and God. Nobody's flying solo. It's the buddy system, right? buddies. I have a friend in, uh, in uh, India. She was my uh, youth pastor when I was a teenager, and she is in long-term missions in North India. And uh, they have a, uh, they work in a community where it's 100% predominantly Muslim. Not a lot militant, but there's some there. And their whole strategy, and they go, she obviously did not go by herself. There's a team there. Uh, there's a, there was a YWAM team there. And they basically built a business. They built a factory, employ locals. They make goods that can be only produced and maybe what we can find in Barnes and Nose or whatever, you know, like leather bound goods or whatever. And uh, what they do in the beginning of the factory or when they start on the day, they come together. They read the Bible and they pray. Amazing things is starting to happen within this community where they're trying to share the love of Jesus and, and get into a deep relationship with these ladies and men. People are reading about Esau, which is in, the, in Islam, that's the name of Jesus, Esau. 
People are, are wanting to be baptized within this community. Muslims are having dreams about Jesus. One guy who uh, I think almost committed suicide, one Muslim guy who was working for them and had a relationship with them, told them, you know, before I thought religion just failed me. He said Islam failed him, and he saw this hope that, that, that within Christianity or within Jesus that there is this relationship that he can hold on to. Our modern way of doing evangelism is very much believe in this and that, and you can belong. But I believe Jesus presents us with belong. Come and follow me. Follow the way so that you may be transformed by the renewal of your minds. Uh, it's, it's also interesting that we don't see apostles in Acts trying to argue someone to believe in Jesus Christ. He does, they don't do that. Jesus doesn't do that either. It's interesting. It's almost like Jesus didn't want to have followers, but he kept saying stuff that like made people run away. Like, this is weird. But the apostles also sort of acted the same. Uh, the only, it seems like the only times where they argued for God was when they were talking with people who already thought that they know God. So, but there's reasoning, and we clearly see this lack of understanding of the Holy Spirit in the mission of God. I come from, from, from a Pentecostal and charismatic background. I don't swing on chandeliers or anything, but I still consider myself a Pentecostal at times. Um, sometimes I think even a critique to Pentecostals is that we have a very lack of an understanding of, Christ, of, 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 of Holy Spirit, the third member of Trinity, and how he is able to ignite missions and how he is able to move the gospel from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria to the ends of the earth. Sometimes I think, uh, you know, from the churches that I was raised up, we only look at the Holy Spirit for spiritual gifts and power, but lack this theology of a Holy Spirit being a central role for justice, for evangelism, and for missions. I was, uh, I was, I remember uh, eight years ago, I was in the campus of. Um, uh, University of Central Florida in Orlando, right? And, and I was talking with this exchange student, a Japanese exchange student. Um, and I had to speak to him through a translator. And I was still, you know, trying to argue people into living the Jesus life. Uh, but it was interesting because he never really were introduced to gospel. He pretty much grew up in Japan. And it was the fact. It was a fact that there was no God for him. So I tried all these things out. I tried all these reasonings, the latest stuff that I re read about apologetics and, and how to share your faith and try to disprove that, there, you know, or to prove that there is a God. And I remember at the end, after three hours of conversation through, and through a translation, translator, he accepted Jesus with no credit to me, trust me. <laughs> Such a hype man. <laughs> I appreciate it. Um, so I asked him, because I was still very insecure in terms of sharing my faith, and I just wanted to know, hey, what arguments, what, what thing brought you out and made you believe? 
And it was the verse, I can't remember where now, but taste and see that I am good. Taste and see that I am good. That's it. It's not some complex arguments and, 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 and intricate, you know, eloquent thoughts. It was this simple invitation to try me. This simple invitation to follow me. That's so attractive about Jesus, isn't it? Margaret Manning, uh, who's part of the Rabbi Zacharias ministry, said this about Augustine and the Trinity. For Augustine, love best, best illustrated the nature of the Trinity. Augustine argues that God's nature is indeed relational and personal, and it expressed in a divine community of love. It cannot be said that God is love if God is alone. In fact, instead, love resides both in God's nature as a personal being and in relationship to the beloved Jesus Christ by love, the Holy Spirit. Now, while that best in an analogy, Augustine's definition communicates two key scriptural truths about God. God is both personal and relational. In his very nature, God's not a distant being removed from creation, but God is personally involved, engaged, He is so personally involved that God even participated in our humanity through Jesus Christ, being fully God and fully man. This is what the theological doctrine of the incarnation communicates. As a personal God, therefore, God is relational. God is love, as the epistle of John tells us, and that love is shared in the divine community of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Indeed, through love, God reaches out to the creation and calls it back into a relationship through the redeeming work of Jesus Christ by the transformational work of the Holy Spirit. She ends like this. As a redeemed community of love, how ought we to reflect the reality of the Trinity in our world? How might we draw others into the redeemed community and away from the loneliness, isolation, and self-destruction? We are to call others into that community enfolded in the life of the Trinity, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit in divine community. What we see in Acts chapter 2, Holy Spirit comes as promised by Jesus, and Peter preaches at the Pentecost, and one of the first times that real move of God happens. And it's recorded that about 3,000 were baptized and joined the kingdom of God that day. And let me sort of end as we started with this verse. And they devoted themselves, this passage, they devoted themselves to the apostles, teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayer. And all came upon every soul. And a many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions, belongings, and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Here's my challenge. Talk in your communities, house churches. How can we show the love of God and share the gospel? Ask yourself, what is the Holy Spirit doing in my neighborhood and the city that I can already get involved in? 
One of the things that we're talking about in the mission committee, and uh, Trey and Yasmani, they've been working hard to figure out ways where we can get involved. But I, I think a lot of times I'm so tired of just homeless ministry. Like, they're not people. They're just programs. How about if we did something different and we befriended one or two people that we see and have a conversation with, build a relationship, invite them into the house church and and help them, give them resources, give them the rehabilitation they need and, and the education they need and find a job. That, t- that might take two to five years. That takes relationship. That takes community. That takes support. But how can we do that? How can we do that? Let's pray for that. Let's pray for a real move of the Holy Spirit in our communities where we can really reach and this, this missional living of God, this, this mission of God that comes out forth where we can evangelize and share the gospel in this way. Let me pray and um, we'll do the uh, communion. So Father, Abba Father, we love you. We love you. You loved us first so deeply. I pray, Holy Spirit, oh God, that you would give us the wisdom and the understanding. But at the same time, Lord, help me because sometimes I lack the compassion. And I ask, Lord, that you would give me and us here compassion for the specific individuals in our lives and to see their lives transformed. I pray, O Father, for Holy Spirit, for your anointing, for you to come in our hearts upon us, that we may be moved by you, O God. I pray for courage and boldness that comes only from the Holy Spirit in our hearts that we may not be insecure about the gospel and what you have done. That we may be able to move courageously and declare your kingdom. In the name of Jesus, amen. So we're going to take communion. And uh, if it's your first time here, please, uh, if you're a Christian, feel free to take part. You're welcome to. Uh, If you're not a Christian and if you want to participate in the kingdom of God and want to go ahead, take your communion for the first time with the understanding of what the Holy Spirit is doing. If you're not ready to do that, this is something very sacred for us. So we we ask you not to take part. But I wish you would. So one of the things that we also did is that we've um, added additional communion stations Back, back in the corners as well as in the middle. Uh, so please take part. Amen.